Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we want to talk about one of the biggest deals uh, in the food service and the food industry because there's distribution that may be involved. And to help us understand what's going on, we've got Bert Flickinger. And uh, Bert, of course, is an expert when it comes to retail. He's the managing director at Strategic Resource Group. Uh, Bert, tell us uh, about the companies involved. Uh, admonish me for uh, how poorly I pronounce uh, their names. And uh, tell us about who the protagonists are. Uh, Tim, uh, this this will be if McCormick uh, is able to buy Reckett Ben Kaiser uh, Food Division, which the crown jewels are uh, French's mustard and Frank's hot sauce. That'll be one of the great acquisitions of the last 15 years. Fast footnote, I've worked with McCormick CEO Frank uh, Kersius since I started at Zataran's Sleepy Little New Orleans brand for years uh, with Steve Zadie's Milen Pollock and I, uh, colleagues at IPG, yeah. helped Lawrence and his team take Zataran's from multi-regional to national to international. And McCormick's done a lot of great things uh, with, with may- mayonnaise, obvi- obviously spices, uh, but with what they can do uh, with Frank's hot sauce and uh, t- taking French's mustard from a uh, d- uh, distant, almost non-entity yeah. in major markets to a powerhouse, uh, it's going to be Kraft Heinz's uh, worst nightmare. And, and it's it, it, people wow. say it's overpaying, that's, they're underpaying. That, that's, that's bold. And you say that people say that they're overpaying. I want to home in on that because uh, they are paying $4.2 billion for record uh, right now. Now McCormick shares down about five and a half percent. So indeed, shareholders do not think uh, that they're going to uh, compete with Kraft Heinz, perhaps in the same level uh, that you do. What gives you faith that you're right and the market's wrong? Uh, be, because uh, Lawrence Lawrence Curzius has been a brilliant uh, brand builder and marketer his, his whole life, Lisa. So you, so you look at French's, uh, um, you know, good good brand in Rochester where uh, Wegmans is, but really hasn't achieved size and scale anywhere else. Uh, Lawrence uh, and other than the Northeast and Lawrence Curzius will, will make French's a power brand. All right, hang on, hang on, Bert, hang on. Uh, that's all in the future. Uh, can you just explain to me a little bit about the stock? Because uh, th- at one time, I mean, this was a st- you know 105 bucks a share, and the, the, the McCormick, I mean, uh, and unless I'm reading it wrong, I mean, I, it has not been a pretty ride down to uh, to 90. Uh, full disclosure, Pim, I've, I've been a McCormick shareholder halfway to forever, and I'm ecstatic about the deal. I've seen the stock uh, drop in recent years as low as 68. Uh, but um, my, McCorm- McCormick needs more size and scale. Reckitt Ben Kaiser never had it. The combination of the two companies gives it, uh, provides that size and scale, and they'll help the retailers profitably uh, grow the sales in the departments and with the consumers. 
particularly millennials, they're in the sweet spot of categories, and it'll take it from uh, a routine category to a growth, what Eddie Epstein calls expandable consumption, that the more people buy, they'll quickly consume it and, and, and buy more. So, Wow. Bert, than- you're, per- you're portraying a world where we're just awash in uh, mustard and hot sauce, uh, as well as perhaps some allspice. You know, I have to wonder, given the fact that grocery chains have had uh, quite a bit of trouble, given the depressed uh, pricing on commodities, on, uh, on on different food staples, as well as distribution challenges, right? Because we have Amazon buying Whole Foods. You know, how does this play into that? And what challenges do they face that may, uh, you know, be a little bit more complicated than past challenges? Lisa, uh, to your present points, let the key uh, retailers in, in Texas, who are the fastest growing, selling to Latino, African-American, and Caucasian and Asian communities, answer your question. McCormick's uh, mayonnaise is one of the fastest growing mayonnaises. Craft, uh, both for Miracle Whip and Craft mayonnaises, uh, cut quality and being able to do a combination of uh, mayo in, 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 in addition to uh, spice product all the way across uh, salted snacks, condiments, uh, pickles, a, a lot of other things that McCormick can move quickly on. Uh, ret- retailers uh, want this. They're excited about it. Consum- consumers will be very All right, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me ask you, let me just, let, let, let's just get your, your, your detail on, on another topic having to do with Lawrence Curzius, right? He is the chief executive of McCormick, but he hasn't been in that role for very long, or has he? Uh, he's 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 been uh, for a few fiscals and uh, but Lawrence was in charge of marketing, uh, president and COO for a long time. Okay, so this is something that that uh, that a veteran because he is a veteran of of McCormick. I mean, he spent many many years there. Uh, yeah, Pim and Lisa, you can, you, can, you can take any CPG company nationally or internationally. Lawrence is one of the best uh, mar- marketers, executive uh, leaders, and business builders uh, anywhere, any country. So any he continent. can make this work. I'm sorry? Hey, can he make this deal work? Because, I mean, right now you have a situation where their stock is down five and a half, uh, McCormick stock is down five and a half percent. The record stock is up uh, about one percent. Uh, and you know, you look at that chart of uh, McCormick; it's not good. Boy, uh, one, Curzius should make it make it work. Uh, two, this will be this will be a stock even in an overvalued market uh, that will be up twenty percent in two years. And and as an individual investor, yeah. I'd, I'd be buying more. And I don't say that lightly because yeah. there are very few stocks that, that that I'd recommend at this point. All right, Bert Flickinger is absolutely one hundred percent bullish on McCormick after this acquisition. Shareholders not so much uh, right now, but we'll see if they uh, join. Bert in his enthusiasm for hot sauce and mayonnaise. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group, coming to us uh, on the phone. This is the era of data. There just is more and more of it being churned out by huge companies. You're talking from Amazon to Google to IBM. Uh, And it's getting more tricky to store it all. Uh, Enter a company called Looker, which is trying to assemble data from a variety of different places that companies have stored, uh, stored it without having to extract it from those platforms to give us more of a sense of what really this means, because I'm sure I butchered it. Frank Bien, he is chief executive 
executive officer of Looker, which is based in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, also joining us is Mandeep Singh, uh, industry analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, who's based, who's in Chicago today. Uh, Frank, did I totally butcher that? Uh, can you explain a little bit better <laughs> what it is that Looker is uh, uh, seeking to accomplish? Sure. Thanks a lot. I appreciate you having me on this morning. Um, yeah, you know, Looker's a software product. I mean, we're a software as a service cloud product that helps companies, you know, think of it as putting data into the hands of everyone to make better decisions. You know, in the past, I think we served the C-suite or we, we gave data to the CFO or we gave data to the important people. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing companies who are, who are disrupting their industries really put data into the hands of everyone so they can make better decisions. And, and I mean, we're like you said, we're doing it at interesting companies, you know, places like Amazon or The Economist or Sony Gaming, you know, Blue Apron, Twilio. So, so it's the companies who are disrupting on data are finding if they, if, they give, if they give better information to the people in their organizations to make better decisions that they can, they can actually, you know, work more on, on, you know, fact rather than just intuition. Mandeep, maybe just explain to us exactly where this fits in and what kind of growth the industry is seeing. We think uh, BI Analytics is about uh, a 15 to $20 billion market, uh, growing at 10%. And part of the growth, like Frank said, is coming from this wave around uh, self-service analytics, where companies are now letting their uh, line of business users to leverage analytics and really uh, do it on their own rather than giving it to an IT department to crank out reports. So that has really uh, driven the market and i think it's it's there's a lot of upside to you know just uh, the growth outlook frank i'm trying to wrap my head around what exactly it means to give the consumer the little guy uh, the access to leverage data does that mean when somebody is looking up their twitter statistics to find out how many of their users are fake or does it mean uh they can use amazon data that they've accumulated to give them uh, a personality profile of of themselves yeah it, you know it doesn't even have to be that complex you know companies you know are operating you know with lots of systems you know they have customer support systems and they have finance systems they have all of these things but think is think if i'm just a customer support person on the phone and i'm helping i'm helping people every day i want to have access to exactly what's happening i want to have access is the person i'm talking to are they not paying their bills are they behind are they you know have they filed a lot of customer support tickets what's their overall health how should i be you know kind of thinking about it when i'm talking to them in real time, you know, at that moment. And I think, you know, data's done well to serve the big science projects that you mentioned, you know, like what's happening on Twitter, things like that. But it hasn't really been democratized, right? It hasn't really been put into the hands of everybody. And what we're trying to do at Looker is put it into the hands of everybody, like those customer support people or, or people on the warehouse floor taking pictures of merchandise. How are those pictures, you know, performing on the web? Really put it into the hands of everyone so they can, they can you know, make better decisions every day. Frank, there's a tension here because it, on one level, it's important to have a certain democratization of information. And there, on the other hand, there's some pretty big privacy concerns that this raises as well. How do you address that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So data has been really decentralized. You know, there's been this proliferation of lots of, like, spreadsheet tools and workbook tools and, and things that people carry around on their on their laptops. And that's a big security problem because, you know, people go around with 
patient private, private information on their laptops or things like that because they're downloading these spreadsheets. And what we're trying to do at Looker is sort of bring control over all of that so that there's this single source of truth, but it's also managed and governed and there's security around it. And I think that is a huge issue because we've really been suffering over the last 10 years of a proliferation of small tools that, that let people walk around with stuff on, on their desktops and laptops. Tell us about this language that you've developed and why people should now go and have to learn another computer language. We, we, yeah. More middleware, please. Yeah, no, we're not. We're not, you know, saying that that business users would learn any kind of data language. But, but you know, people coming out of school today who want to get into tech are often looking at data as a career. And you know, you have a lot of people who are majoring in economics or business, and 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 they're doing data stuff. It's one of the fastest growing, you know, career paths. Yeah, I, you end up taking that SQL Server course. Right, exactly. And, and what we want to do is we want to give those people interesting tools so they can better serve their companies. So the people in the company and the support team or the, you know, the, the warehouse, they're not you know, learning a, a data language by any means, but we're, we're sort of leveraging these people who are coming out of school with a bit of data background and al- allowing them to curate an experience, right? Curate yeah. uh, you know, a better application for those, for those end business users. Mandeep, what's the barrier to entry here? Why aren't some of the behemoth tech companies coming up with their own analytic systems and, uh, and, and using them to democratize their offerings? I think right now this is coming up bottom up. So you're you're seeing a lot of the startups. Uh, I mean, a Tableau and Click are not startups anymore, but they really uh, came up with a new way to think outside of the data warehouse realm. So a lot of this kind of functionality was done in a data warehousing platform. What these guys did was came up with this self-service analytics platform where, like Frank said, you you can have the users crank out reports, analyze the data, and this whole proliferation of cloud and AI is actually a tailwind for for this analytics wave. So uh, the large behemoths are still catching up, you know, just integrating the new technologies, and they haven't really focused on the analytics aspect that much. Mandeep, can you just give us a little more detail about artificial intelligence? Give you about 30 seconds here. Uh, sure. So AI is really coming together in the sense that uh, the basis of uh, performing AI analytics is data. And once you have data aggregated and you can process it in real time through cloud, it enables a lot of things in terms of doing things real time, which can drive ROI for a lot of industries. So that's really the genesis of this wave of self-service analytics. Frank, I'm only going to give you 10 seconds. AI? Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, we're finally starting to see, you know, out of the, the benefit of the cloud pr- platforms at Amazon and Google and whatnot, the ability to, for everyone to be like those organizations. And I think you'll see those kind of technologies go into the hands of smaller, you know, or uh, smaller companies. Thank you very much. Frank Bien, he is the chief executive of Looker. They are based in Santa Cruz. And our thanks to Mandeep Singh, industry analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
One of the biggest movers today in the stock market is Scripps Networks Interactive with a gain in its shares of about 14.5%. This comes after Discovery and Viacom are said to be uh, talking about combining with this network. And just uh, for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking HGTV and Food Network. People want uh, some some food throwdowns and some uh, renovations of their homes. Here to give us a little bit more of a sense of how realistic a deal is is Alex Sherman, technology, media, and telecom uh, mergers and acquisitions reporter for Bloomberg News. Alex, do you think, uh, first of all, who do you think has the upper hand, Discovery or Viacom? So this is a tricky one because I think there were problems with both buyers. Um, and that, and therefore, while the market seems to be pretty confident that a deal is going to happen here, I am less confident. Uh, I, I can Look, I reported this story, so I can say that there is a sales process going on, but Scripps has been perennially for sale. Three years ago, Discovery almost bought Scripps, and that deal fell apart. So there is some logic there that Discovery is at least interested. And Discovery has a lot of programming that is geared toward men in general, and Scripps has a lot of programming that is geared toward women in general. So there, there is sort of a natural fit there. But that deal didn't get done for a reason, in part because there was a bid-ask difference. And now... If, if Scripps is running a sales process, you'd imagine, again, Discovery would have to pay up and Discovery is controlled, or at least not quite controlled, but let's say 30% of the votes are controlled by John Malone, who is not known to bid up in auctions. So that is the problem with Discovery. Viacom's problem is if you take a look at Viacom's shares, you, don't, you only have to go back until about March or so when Viacom was trading at about $46 a share. They're now trading at $36 a share. So any deal with Viacom would probably be, at least some component of it would be stock. And they sort of missed their chance to use their currency well. Uh, and now their company is about $14, $14.5 billion market cap company. Scripps is about, uh, let's say, a 9.8, 9 9.9, so almost $10 billion market cap company. It would be a huge deal for Viacom, and they wouldn't be using their stock at its high price. So... That's probably the problem with Viacom there, just from a financial standpoint. This would be an enormous bet. Viacom almost merged with CBS. Is Scripps really the right bet? I don't know. Doesn't this also lead to Sherry Redstone? So there's control issues on both fronts, to your point, Pim. I was going to say, you need a genealogical uh, assistant here, because there are a lot of tangled Right, components. so Sumner Redstone is still alive. But, and not the only family, right? But Vi- Exactly. They're all run by families, which is, by the way, a bigger reason even beyond Viacom why any of these media deals haven't happened yet. So let me take a step back here. All of these media companies probably should consolidate with each other. And by all, I mean AMC, Scripps, Discovery, Viacom. They're all challenged right now because cable providers are offering skinnier bundles where they, for years and years and years, these companies have done phenomenally well because when it came time to negotiating contracts with the pay TV providers, I mean the Comcast, DirecTV, Dish Network, etc. of the world, how you get your TV. When it came down to negotiating contracts with them, the deal was you either take all of our channels or none. That is starting to happen less and less these days because the leverage has moved toward the pay TV providers who have basically said, we'll take none. And then what are you going to do about it? Uh, And the reason there being that you can get a lot of these programming the taped programming in other ways. You can get some on Netflix. You can get some on Hulu. Uh, you know, I want to just go a little bit broader 
And when we're talking about HGTV, we're talking reality television shows. And I'm wondering how much their business model is being challenged by YouTube and the fact that the barrier to entry has just gone down so dramatically. So a lot of the programming has been challenged. The programming that has not been challenged is live programming because you can't get that on YouTube. But Discovery and, and Viacom and Scripps, they don't have live programming. So they are really in the crosshairs of how people watch TV changing and 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 it's it's not an it's 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 not good for these companies which is why theoretically they could merge and then they could sort of have a little bit more leverage because they could be like well we have these three channels that are still good like hgtv a lot of people still watch that and you know discovery has a few channels that people still watch and yeah we have a bunch of these channels that nobody still watches but if we put our combined forces together we come up with a company that at least still has some leverage of course you end up then with a huge company that has a lot of channels that nobody still watches too (laughs) so this runs both ways where yeah they get a little bit more leverage but then what are you going to do with the 14 channels that no one's watching anymore Wow, I don't know what the oh, I you know that is the the challenge I guess but but Alex, can you just do a little family feud for us? I was what on is, Family Feud by the I, way, Fam. Like literally on Family you Feud. You were. I was. Oh, we got to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Family I love it. All right, so um did you get to meet Richard Dawson? No, it was not Richard Dawson, it was Louis Anderson All at the right, time. Good. Yeah. Sorry, you're I was not kissed on the cheek by Richard Dawson. All right. What so uh, who are the families involved here? So the families are the Redstone family runs Viacom. Sumner Redstone is still alive. He's very ill. Sherry Redstone has basically been running the company in, in his stead for years now. Scripps is also owned by a family. And it's the idea behind whether or not Scripps would sell has always been like, well, the family is on board if the price is right. Discovery is owned by John Malone. AMC is owned by the Dolan family. There are, you know, CBS is sort of a free radical. That's the that's John Malone's term out there, but but only in the sense that the Redstones, of course, control CBS too. They're only a free radical in the sense that Les Moonves maybe has more control than than most CEOs with that company. So some people think that CBS might be able to do something on the pure force of Les Moonves, the CEO of that company, even though he doesn't own it. So each of these families is owned. Each of these companies is owned by family. And yes, they're publicly traded companies, but whether or not they actually trade depends really on whether or not the families want to keep owning the company or whether they're game to do a deal. As always, thank you very much. Alex Sherman, he is our mergers and acquisitions reporter for Bloomberg. Well, I want to turn to Casey Matthews, an economist and the chief investment officer for UMB Bank with a responsibility for over $8 billion. They're based in Kansas City. And uh, Casey Matthews, thanks very much for coming into our Bloomberg studio. Good morning. Good to see you. I'm wondering if you could, uh, first of all, uh, I'm outgunned here because I understand that there are two people in the studio who have connections to Wisconsin. That's right. Yes. Grew up just outside Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All right. And Lisa Abramowitz, come on. Yeah, my, my mother's family is from Wisconsin. Okay. So the reason I ask is what is the view of what is going on, not only with the, the politics and so on, but with money and people's relationship? What do they think? To feel confident that the stock market's going to stay moving higher? 
Well, yeah. Let me let me start with maybe confidence in the business sector. I'm more of a macro okay. stage, and we'll get into the maybe right. a little micro. But it's interesting that when you look at some of the the surveys, the NFIB small business optimism, clearly business owners and executives feel good about things. But when you ask them, what are you going to do about it? They're sitting on their hands because they're saying, tell me what my tax rate's going to be. Tell me what my regulatory environment's going to be. So they feel good that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But until they get some concrete evidence, that confidence, the lack of uncertainty, they're not going to take any action. And that's why you see a mediocre economy. Well, you know, I'm interested in in the fact that you start on this note because we were just talking about, frankly, how the bump that we've seen in stocks has been less due to President Trump's election and the expected changes politically, uh, but more due to the earnings growth that we've seen and the boom there. So uh, it sort of contrasts with this sitting on the hands, wondering what's going to happen, mediocrity that you're describing when you're talking about the expected 8% growth that you are looking for in the second quarter earnings and earnings growth in the second right. quarter that's right well if you go you have to go back to end of 2014 where we saw an earnings recession in corporate america we had seven quarters of earnings contraction and it's interesting the timing it wasn't until the third quarter of 2016 when we got the data was middle of october through november the election Right. Right. All of a sudden, we saw this ray of sunshine. Earnings turned positive, a whopping two percent in the fourth quarter. They were eight or nine. The first quarter of this year, eighteen percent. And all of a sudden, stocks moved, and a lot of people label it the Trump rally. Well, I call it an earnings rally. So you're, you think that people are conflating uh, the election with the earnings growth that we saw really accelerate at the beginning of the year? Uh, so just translating this into market positioning. Does this mean that you are bullish on U.S. stocks? And if so, which sectors in particular and how much longer can this rally continue? Yeah, we are bullish on stocks. We're overweight risk-based assets for a number of reasons. The macro data points to an improving economy. One thing I look at is the ISM new orders, very leading indicator. When business owners and executives tell me they're placing orders, it tells me their business is good. Um, So we're at you know, two-year highs on those numbers. The bond market gives us clues. When you look at the shape of the yield curve, we have about a 90 basis point, uh, a slope between twos and tens. And typically when you start to see the yield curve flatten, which we started to see, even when it gets flat, you still have 12 to 24 months before the stock market reacts. So I believe that uh, earnings will continue to support stock prices. That's not to say we won't see a correction. We haven't seen a correction in a long time. They're normal and healthy. But longer term, I think stocks will outperform fixed income and cash. Sectors we like, you know, you've seen some weakness in the dollar. That'll help exports, those industrials. We do like finance. Finance is sitting here waiting for a steep yield curve, higher interest rates, and regulation reform. So uh, we're pretty broad-based as far as our sector allocation. I want to ask you, turn back to uh, something you said about uh, how a business feels, right? That was the macro picture. Yes, sir. Um, wh- what if the macro picture is about ever-increasing uncertainty? In other words, you're waiting for the dust to settle and the companies that are making new strides and whatever it is 
they're not waiting for the dust to settle because they realize that it doesn't settle anymore. You have too many market participants. You have too many uh, companies that can come in with a laptop and you know uh, a genius mind <laughs> and disrupt the entire transportation industry like Uber or hotels like Airbnb. Well, I think what happens is if you don't get clarity on some of these issues, you're stuck in the mud at that 2% GDP growth. So- yeah, but they're not going to do it for the health of the GDP growth. They're going to do it because they know that they can make more money, that it's good for their business, right? But so if the competition comes in, you know, the guy down the street says, well, no, I'm going to offer it better, faster, cheaper. Well, those are disruptors that yeah, are in the right. marketplace today. Amazon's Does a that need to happen example. more? I mean, is, so I'm wondering why you, would you be investing in, you know, like healthcare and biotechnology and technology? Is that not a area of where you want to put some of your chips? Sure, absolutely. Like I said, we're, we're pretty much diversified across broad sectors uh, because of that situation. But I think that's that healthy competition makes us better, makes corporations better, more efficient. It'll increase earnings and, of course, revenue growth. But you've got the disruptors like Amazon and you've got some of these other companies that... Um, well, like Nelson Peltz at Tryon. How about Blue Apron? You know, some of these things show up and almost disappear. Well, you know, uh, not yet. It hasn't disappeared yet, but but it definitely uh, seems the, to be on, on the way. Track. Yeah, it's on that track. You know, Casey, I, I want to just talk about how you're saying that the fundamentals look good, and so the rally will continue. Uh, one problem that people raise is that the markets have become broadly, uh, public markets anyway, have become broadly detached from fundamentals due to central bank stimulus, and now that the economy is improving. As central banks withdraw the stimulus, it doesn't matter that fundamentals are improving. It's going to cause a sell-off that could potentially be more sustained or at least cap any future gains. I mean, are you concerned about that? Does that matter to you? I'm not. It's interesting. Some things we think about is, does the Fed really matter? And when you think about it, well, I would assume most CFOs have termed out their debt if they have access to their capital markets or if there's a lot of pressure on banks to term out their debt. Same thing with the consumer. Now, today, something like 90 plus percent of mortgages are a fixed rate mortgages, not variable rate like the housing crisis. So I think you're in a different environment. So I'm not sure the Fed today with this with seven years of monetary stimulus really matters. And if rates you know, move up slightly, I don't know if it really matters dramatically to corporate earnings. Really interesting, especially because for so long there was this there is no alternative trade where basically people weren't getting any yield in, in, in bonds. So you might as well go to stocks. You know, there's concern that people are going to rotate out of stocks and go back into bonds if yields get high enough, especially because, I mean, realistically, if, if yields can remain this low, that means that growth will not pick up that much. Right. But you got a long ways to go. Yeah. Before people go out of stocks and into bonds because of the yield. Casey Matthews, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a pleasure having you, thank you. in the studio here. Casey Matthews is economist and chief investment officer at UMB Bank, which is based in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and manages over $8 billion. And he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.